0: It's philosophy talk.
1: Saul's kind of faith is a gift. It's like an ear for music or the talent to draw. He believes and you can use logic on him all day long and he still
0: believes. Must everything be logical? Faith asks us to put our trust in things greater than ourselves. So isn't it just a form of humility? Isn't faith a form of intellectual arrogance because it requires us to reject evidence, science, and reason? Why are the faithless so dogmatic and arrogant that they claim to know better than God himself? Because i got to have faith.
2: If all your
0: faith is wrong, so, yeah. I mean, just what if? Huh? If. Hmm? Then I'll still have a better life than all of those that doubt.
1: Wait a minute. Are you telling me that you prefer God to the truth?
0: If necessary, I will always choose God over truth. Faith and humility, coming up on Philosophy God.
1: Hi, I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. If you're enjoying this episode of Philosophy Talk, won't you consider supporting the show? Your donation of any size will help us stay on the air and online. Where we can continue to question everything. Accept your intelligence. And help people think about things differently. Just go to philosophytalk.org and click donate at the top of the page. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for supporting Philosophy Talk.
0: Does faith require humility before God?
1: Isn't a blind dogmatic faith a kind of arrogance?
0: Or is it atheists who reject faith and deny God who are really the arrogant ones?
1: Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything
0: except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor.
1: And I'm Deborah Satz, and we're here at the studios of KALW in San Francisco.
0: Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Deborah and I teach philosophy.
1: Today, we probe the relationship between faith and humility. This is another episode in our ongoing series on intellectual humility.
0: You know, Deborah, some people, especially non-believers, think that there's an inherent conflict between faith and humility. But, you know, I don't think that's right. I mean, faith sees itself as a form of humility, humility before God.
1: Well, that's what the faithful like to tell themselves. But you know what? They can be stubbornly dogmatic, and dogmatism is not humility.
0: Yeah, but the faithful will say back to that, that it's those who reject faith and put themselves above God who are really the prideful, arrogant ones, and they see that as a sin.
1: Wait, 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 hold on. It's believers who claim a direct pipeline to God. What can be more arrogant than that? And you know where such arrogance has led in history, to the crusades, to inquisitions, to jihads. Well, look,
0: look, look, I'm not going to defend all aspects of religion. Like all things human, religion has its dark side. I can grant you that.
1: Amen to that. Well,
0: but still, let's not be so quick to dismiss faith entirely, Deborah. At least not genuine faith.
1: Well, how exactly do you propose to distinguish genuine faith from, what,
0: fake faith? Yeah, I think some faith... Is fake. I mean, think Kierkegaard. He says that genuine faith, and I think he's right, is not the kind of thing you get by, you know, going to church on Sunday, mouthing a few prayers, nodding in agreement with the Stern Sermon. You don't really have faith, the real thing, until you can complete a journey like that of Abraham.
1: That's a really high standard, Ken. <laughs> well, that's
0: true. <laughs>
1: God promises Abraham and his wife, Sarah, a son when they're, you know, like 100 years old in their dotage. And it's a miracle. He gives them a son. But Then what does he go and do?
0: He he turns around and he commands Abraham, I mean, this takes the cake, to take his son up the mountain and sacrifice, that is, kill him, yeah. So so what's the point here? Uh, You
1: have to be willing to kill your child in order to have faith?
0: No, it's not about that. I mean, and and after all, the angel saves uh, Isaac, and so Abraham doesn't have to kill Isaac. But the point is about... Abraham's journey. That's what Kierkegaard wants you to focus on. I mean, think of what that journey must have been like. I mean, try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Uh, You think of the pain, the anguish, the doubt and hesitation, the fear and trembling, as as Kierkegaard calls it, that, that you'd have to go through.
1: I can't even imagine what it would be like to be Abraham.
0: That's precisely Kierkegaard's point. Despite the fact that we can't imagine it, that it would be awful, Abraham obeys. He straightway obeys, and that's what genuine faith is. And that's not the synthetic process faith substitute that most believers have, and it's, and it's not at all arrogant. Deborah, it's a torturous willingness to submit to the unfathomable will of God. It's amazing.
1: That's very poetic sounding, Ken. But not only doesn't it not help with our original problem, it actually makes things worse. Oh, come on, how? How? Well, supposing you come across someone today dragging his poor son up a mountain, and he tells you that his plan is to follow Abraham. (laughs) Wouldn't you try to
0: stop him? You bet I would.
1: And if he says, move aside, Ken, I do as God commands, would you just
0: accept (laughs) it? No, no way. I'd treat him like a murderous lunatic, I think.
1: Well, my point is a faith like Abraham's, however moving, can also be disastrous for other people and for their rights. oh, Oh,
0: okay, okay, so look, look. Uh, you got me here. I mean, because uh, you're saying the Crusades are just lurking around the corner. So maybe the answer is a faith that's not so dogmatic. I mean, uh, and you know, once faith uh, is humble—not simply before God, but also before the rest of us—once faith listens to every voice rising from God's creation, then maybe reason wouldn't feel a need to be hostile to faith. So, so here's my advice to the faithful: Forget Abraham and his invincible uh, faith. Be like the Unitarian Universalist or something.
1: So now you want a kumbaya movement? You want a faith that's wishy-washy? Well,
0: thanks to you, you win. You convinced me that maybe that's the only possible way for the faithful and the faithless to humbly coexist. You win, Deborah.
1: Well, I I like winning. (laughs) uh, But try telling this to those of genuine faith that you began talking about. Well, why, why do you want to bring them
0: back into this?
1: Because to them... That your solution leads to things like cafeteria style Catholicism, where you just pick and choose which doctrines of the church to accept based on your own preferences or the fads of the moment. And then we're back to faith in name only.
0: Gosh, you're whip showing me, Deborah. This is really hard stuff. Look, I don't think you and I are going to settle this here, but maybe our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, can help. We sent her out to talk to someone who's lived on both sides of the faith divide. She files this report.
2: When author and atheist leader Chris Stedman fell out of faith, he was a teenager trying to make sense of how cruel human history has been. He found little reassurance in Christian ideas.
3: I just couldn't believe that the only people who had sort of figured this out and gotten this right were Christians.
2: Stedman became a sort of agnostic non-believer, a secular humanist. Today, he works to build the kind of spiritual community among secular people that he found so nourishing in faith spaces. As an atheist, he's a public figure, appearing on programs like The Bill O'Reilly Show. You
3: know, I want to hear from atheists. What do we believe in? What do we stand for? What are our highest values? Rather
0: right. than, Rather than alienating you know,
3: 82 yeah. percent of the population, which sees
0: you guys as cheap-shotting them.
2: But when he took on this role and subjected himself to an audience, he learned something about atheists. Some of them were as controlling and intolerant as the most doctrinaire Christians he'd encountered. Over the internet, they criticized his message, they felt he was soft on religion, and they harassed him about personal things. After his appearance on O'Reilly, he says,
3: The majority of the negative feedback that I got, both from Fox viewers and even from some atheists, was either overtly sort of homophobic or had um, homophobic undertones.
2: The experience drove him to take a step back. And Stedman's not alone in drawing the ire of online atheists. It turns out that the atheism subreddit, an open forum on the website Reddit, is ranked the third most bigoted and toxic of all the website's forums, behind one that's dedicated to sexual strategy and another about a racist radio show. Someone created the Ten Commandments of the atheism subreddit, and they don't scream humility.
3: Thou shalt remember thy sense of superiority and keep it holy. Thou shalt be relentlessly offended and confused by the very concept of religion. Thou shalt conflate religion and extremism because it's less complicated that way. Thou shalt spread the joyous gospel of old creepy Christians getting caught with child porn and other fun stuff.
2: And it goes on. In this light, it can be easier to see what religious people mean when they insist faith is the ultimate act of humility. Peter Wenner is a Christian and an opinion contributor for The New York Times. He writes, quote, at the core of Christian doctrine is the belief that we have fallen short, that our loves are disordered and our lives sometimes a mess, and therefore we are in need of grace. The mark of genuine humility is not self-abasement as much as self-forgetting, which in turn allows us to take an intense interest in the lives of others. Comparing that to this.
0: His eminence is claiming to know more than a primate can possibly know. And he's showing that he knows much less than most primates
2: probably should. For me, it recasts Chris Stedman's story of deconversion. So then when you were challenging your religiousness and kind of coming to this identity, was that a humility or was that the opposite?
3: Um, It was probably some of both. I mean, certainty is seductive. I think that there was a part of me when I was younger and going through a lot of um, big transitions and challenges in life around my family and my sexual orientation.
2: His parents were getting divorced and he was realizing he wasn't straight.
3: I wanted some feeling of security in that. And I found that in these very sort of rigid answers that I got in an evangelical Christian space.
2: Stedman's evangelical ties didn't last too long, in large part because of his sexuality. But counterintuitively, maybe, it was a religious institution that helped him come out as queer. He found an LGBT community in a Lutheran church.
3: Those progressive Christian churches uh, were kind of the place where I could go to find sort of radical acceptance.
2: And in grad school, when he came to terms with his non-belief, it was his Lutheran professors that supported him.
3: And actually really sort of pushed me to, you know, what they wanted was for me to have an honest reckoning with what I believed and to pursue my questions, my doubts, my inquiries.
2: All of this is just to say that humility and openness and their opposites, they abound in religious and secular spaces alike. For Stedman, his circumstances of fear and insecurity, they made him defensive about disagreement.
3: I sort of felt like I needed to really prove to someone why my beliefs were right, and in order to do that, I needed to prove why their beliefs were wrong.
2: As he's emerged from that insecurity, it's made it possible to disagree without being disagreeable. So, counterintuitively, humility was made possible by a kind of assurance. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal.
1: Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.